0: Recorded live. <laughs> Welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. As you hear, my French booster will be screaming through the entire show because it is spring slash going on summer and we have all the windows open. And he's got a big mouth. Not as big as Rooster Cogburn, though. Anyway, no. my name is, my name is Susan Bonner. I'm here with Deb. He's not as loud as Rooster, huh?
1: No, not quite. But he he he's a little higher. He's a tenor instead of a <laughs> soprano.
0: Yeah, well, he's French.
1: Well, oh, there you go. <laughs> ah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Anyway, welcome again, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. Again, my name is Susan Bonner. I'm here with Deb. This is a historical rendition about women in the American Revolution, things that you will never hear, were not taught, well, probably will never be taught unless you (laughs) self-teach again yourself. We've learned a lot, a lot since we started this show, especially that there were many, many many women involved in the revolution in many different ways, whether it was through their writings, whether it was through poetry, whether it was whispering in their husband's ears, a political movement, um, actually fighting in the war, uh, making clothes for the men of the war, uh, food and shelter, being nurses, uh, camp followers. The role of the women in the revolution is a vast, extremely important, and unfortunately it has been buried. And Deb and I have
1: decided to do this project to unearth
0: what has been buried,
1: correct? Yes, yes, and, and you know, the wonderful part about it is the Internet because they're digitizing so much, like a lot of the journals and the letters and uh, you know, there's still a lot of stuff in private collections, but you know, there are women historians who are going out and hunting down these these uh, women, and there's there's um, there's starting to be a, a nice little collection of of books out there um, on the women. Unfortunately, a lot of them just do the same women, and uh, so you know, you want really really want to look for uh, there's, you know, our, the blog sites that we that we use that we found on the internet. Um, the, the, these women have really done a lot of research, and and um, that's where we get our our list from. I I just go searching on the internet, and Susan does too, and and luckily a lot of a lot of uh, you know it's, it's how many years have we been doing this now? I can't remember three, four, three. Nine. Three and a half. Yeah, we're not run out yet. So, um, yeah, I think you know they just keep they keep uh, putting putting information on the internet, and of course you have to make sure that it's you know like a a reputable source and origin. You know the original documents and whatnot. But as always, we that's what we try to do. We. Don't just take the first one we see, because a lot of it's bullshit, political correct bullshit. So.
0: Well, you know, and the thing that is really is disheartening is they have, you know, so for so many years, since the 60s, they've introduced what, quote, unquote, women's studies. And what they should have been studying is when American history, so, you know, you want to get into European history, fine. But you need to me, American history, and I, you really do. And they, there's so much, like you're saying, uh, a font of information out there, that a woman's study could actually be a study of women in the history of the United States. You can start with the Revolutionary War, go through even women inventors. If you go to Women history blog, there's a list of, of women um, that you can look up. Uh, maybe you want to let your, your little girls go through with them, uh, with you that, you know, all the, women, the, all the contributions of women um, through the ages, like the Revolutionary War, the um, Civil War, how they, and, and again, I do articles for Directions and Nursing, and I, did, I have done all of the nurses through all of the wars and how they've evolved and how they contributed and, and put their lives on the line. But, you know, there's women writers that we talk about and inventors and scientists and women-owned on um, plantations in random, they and they own stores and shops and printing um, presses, and this is all this, this just what? And we're we're just settling on the revolution. Look at how many years we've been doing it, that yeah. And you could do a whole a whole four, five, six, seven years on the contributions that women have made to the United States of America, not taking off their bras.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I just, you know, the the and I took women's studies in college. I know. I was a women's studies minor. <laughs> My major was environmental studies, so you can see where I was going. But um they didn't talk about these women. They didn't talk about, you know, the the individualist, the rugged individualist, the ones who uh um you know, they they took care of their, they built their home with their man, you know, and they raised a family out in the middle of nowhere. They took a, a terrifying trip across the Atlantic Ocean to get here to begin with, had no idea what they were coming. And you know who came 1st were indentured servants, women who were indentured servants which was one step above slave. You were basically owned by your master. You know, they just, you know, paid you. Or you worked off, you know. Anyway, you had to get their permission to marry. I mean, so that tells you a lot about that situation. So it's really been wonderful to read about these women that, you know, just, Believed in, in, in freedom and liberty and their own country and and the cause, as they call it, um, so much that they, they put their necks in a noose. And, you know, and they believed in it. They didn't need safe spaces. They were their own safe space. the,
0: the, the uh, Well,
1: not, not only their own safe
0: space, they were their husband's safe space and their children's safe space. And a lot
1: of women did all this stuff pregnant. <laughs> yep.
0: I know. I know. We were just doing a whole article about the freaking guest worker program, the Mexicans coming over, and, of course, it was by the L.A. Times, so it was a, a hit piece and hell. Oh, the hard workers. And I'm just thinking to myself, good Lord, do you have any idea what our freaking frontier women did Yeah.
1: When they came
0: yeah, good Lord, climb me a river. Somebody
1: <laughs> had a Mexico.
0: Hmm. Poor Mexicans. They're getting houses for free, their food for freaking free. They even said that the minimum wage in California, minimum wage these freaking guest workers are getting is $10.27 an hour. You're freaking
1: kidding me? Yeah. Yep, yep,
0: yep. Anyhow. Normally, what we do, since we've been finding so many women, we've actually added the Loyalist women to the Patriot women. We've been doing this for a year and a half. And so I wasn't feeling well, so we split up the Loyalist women because we did the signers of the wives. The wives of the signers of the Declaration of Independence we try to do once a month. And it was easy for, for us to get information on that, and, and I, we just split up the loyalists. So the last Loyalist,
1: That we did,
0: hold on, let me get up my mute, because we're going to do another Loyalist woman. So the last Loyalist we did was uh, Theodosia Prevost Burr, which was the wife of Aaron Burr, and we actually posed the question, was she a Loyalist or a Patriot? And that was a really, I I liked that a lot. That was good food for thought. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go someplace that we haven't gone as far as. the revolution, we usually highlight either the northern, the middle, or the southern theater, but we're doing the loyalists who um, ends up in Canada. Most of the loyalists were shipped, well, they either decided that they were going to leave um, their, they had a choice. You either, what happened was, you either sign on with the colony that slash became a state and pledged loyalty to that state and to the United States of America, or you had the option to leave. Now, most people think that we were horrible. War is horrible. Yes, it is. But as far as the United States goes, and the people of the colonies, and the Americans, we were all Christian, and that that Christian, those Christian values, even in war, held us accountable to a higher being. So. Even though horrible things were done on both sides, nothing was as horrible as what the British did—not only to their own loyalists or anybody that hitched um, their wagon to them, but to Patriots. Um, they were in the Patriots were in the most horrendous prison camp uh, that they ever knew at the time, and that's because the British were um, pretty much nasty, but. We were again a Christian nation, and we were held to a higher a higher being. So what we did is, we said to the loyalists, and we did confiscate. Don't get us wrong; we did confiscate a lot of loyalist property, actually. Believe it or not, to pay for the Revolutionary War. If you are with us, you were against us, and that was it. There was different um, views on that. Some, in some areas depend colony upon colony. They kind of left the loyalists alone, or they just kept an eye on them. Other ones just right out and out confiscated their lands and kicked them out. Now, the British promised the loyalists that they would find sanctuary in Canada. A lot of them went to the other colonies. Most fled to Canada, and most um, went to Nova Scotia. But a lot of them went to New Brunswick, which we've never discussed before. This little lady is very interesting because, and we've said this before about a lot of the, the children during the Revolutionary War. You don't think about it, but she was born during the Revolutionary War, as were a lot of patriots, uh, children, infants. And you've got to think, Deb, what it was like that you didn't, know any, you didn't know anything but war for the first four or five years of your life yeah um that's a completely different mindset because it changed the way your parents took care of you it changed you didn't get an education right away and we talked about how the colonial women would you know at the age of three they started teaching them their alphabet and they would use the ashes from the heart to make the um the alphabet by the age of five years old most most children knew the alphabet already, and they were starting to study the Bible to be, to read, to be, you know, reading to be literate. Um, we had the highest literacy rating uh, in colonial times, way more than we have now. Um, but if you think about it, they couldn't do that for these children. They couldn't do that for these infants because we were in war, and that changed everything. Right? Yeah. Well,
1: yes, war does tend to change your normal life. You're suddenly, you don't know if uh, you're going to have to leave your home or if you're going to have your home or, you know, if the British are coming and they come and they take everything that, you know, isn't nailed down for the, the armies. And the the Patriots did the same thing eventually. And you just never knew, you know. And, and of course, with the... Uh, the uh, times um, with no Internet or texting, uh, you yeah, know, it, it took time for information to reach you, uh, and you really, you know, you didn't know a lot of times until it was all over. Well,
0: well but just in the means of, of you're having babies and you have to supply them with food, you have to supply them with uh, some kind of shelter, you know, all of the other amenities go out the window. Um, chores are not the way that they used to be. Um, the lack of food, clothing. Forget about, you know, trying to teach them to read and write. All, all of that goes out because you go into survival mode. So these children were brought up in, during a survival mode period, not a regular period that an infant would be brought up in. Mm-hmm. Do you agree?
1: yeah it was um well, and plus the fact that if you were patriots you know you you knew i mean you you know you're old enough to understand what was going on, you know, say you're but well about seven or eight, you already know how to shoot if you're living out in the wilderness, mm-hmm. and if you live in town, you hear things, you know um, and you know your parents are 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 different, you know, they're worried, they're concerned, they're because if they're fighting with the Patriots, they're treasonous, right?
0: So, right, and and even when on that saying the the Patriots are treasonous to the crown, so that's your concern as well, having a little infant. But I'm just the first couple of years of these formative years, it was so different for these children than it was for, you know, the children that came after and the children that came before. We've never really talked about it and highlighted it, and I'm glad that the, this loyalist, who is Hannah Ingraham, um, brought this up and this, this point, because you got to think that, you know, Mama is just worrying about by hour-to-hour, day-to-day, to keep her baby safe and to keep her safe. And, um,
1: like I said, everything else goes out the window. Yeah. You're looking You're looking to be able to feed your family. You're looking to, um, you know, stay safe in your home. And, and if you hear, you know, I mean, it was word of mouth a lot of times. And, of course, word of mouth was not always right. And I, I, We've read about women who heard that the British were going to come and that Washington's army was going to come and the ships were coming into the harbor if they were by the water. I mean, it it was just – and then you never knew if if the loyalists were going to show up and, and, you know, they found out you were a patriot, that the loyalists were going to show up and give you what for, or vice versa. If you were found out to be a loyalist, the patriots would show up and give you what for. So it it was a tumultuous time. It it just – yeah, and and it it really affected – You know, a lot of families. You know, there's women, you know, with a baby in her arms, a baby on her back, three of them behind her, um, you know, scurrying out in the middle of the night because her house just burnt down. You know, (laughs) it's war. It was war. There's nothing fun about war. And as we'll see,
0: not only you know, during the war, these young children and infants that were born, they had to deal with the aftermath of the war as well the rebuilding, the relocation, the whole you know i you know I've moved many, many, many times, many, many, many times. As a matter of fact, I was a travel nurse for four years, so I had to move every thirteen weeks, and I know how that is, mhm no. And, I, I, and I wasn't do, it wasn't during war, and it wasn't during the aftermath of war, and it was pretty damn bad. So they grew up, these, these kids grew up to, totally different than any other in that time period because of when they were born. But, so we're going to talk about Loyalist Hannah Ingraham, and we're going to go to Canada. We haven't gone to Canada that much just for a couple of the battles we've highlighted, but we never really got into the relationship between um, Canada and the 13 colonies and why that relationship happened and what the backdrop of it was. So, we're going to start, I'm going to start out with um, the geographical separation between Canada and America, because if you look at South, if you look at North America, it actually could be one continuous continent from Alaska taking in Canada all the way to Mexico, which, you now everybody has their own opinion. I just wish that they did that. We should just be one huge continent. <laughs> and everyone speaks English. And uh, Well, we could speak Spanish in Mexico, but they all speak English anyway. Um, I really, really believe that having it divided the way it is has made it worse. But that would have had to have been done way back in the day. Um, and we would have to deal with a lot of other countries. Like France had part of America, Spain had part of America, Britain had part of America. So I could see how it wasn't practical back then. Um, but if you look at it geographically, it is going from Alaska all the way to Mexico. It is one big landmass. It's not separated, say, by an ocean. Okay, it is one big landmass. So the reasons. For Canada being the way it is, and America's colonies is something that we're going to delve into. Um, Deb is going to take a part of it, and I'm going to take a part of it. But what we're going to start with is, and the site that Deb got is Uh, history.stackexchange.com, and just put in, why did Canada not join the American Revolution? You can actually have some really good maps. That helped me, actually, when we were talking about where, like, Fort Niagara was, Fort Afuego, um, Fort Carlton, Tic- uh, Ticonderoga, where they were in relationship to um, Canada. Um, like, Fort, Fort Mac was right over the border in Canada. Ticonderoga was in Canada as far as the map was concerned. But Niagara was in Canada. Which Niagara is now you know, half Canadian, half American. Um, so you can see where these battles were on these maps. It's really pretty cool. It's, it really helped me to differentiate how we kept going to, to the border and then coming back by the um, maps that you found. But underneath the map, it has good explanations. So, the geographic separation caused the English-speaking British colonies north of Maine to be culturally distinct from the 13 American colonies. The people of Nova Scotia were half New Englanders and half Germans, Highlanders, Ulstermen, and Yorkshiremen. Nova Scotia wished to remain neutral, and that's where most of the Loyalists ended up was in Nova Scotia. British naval power and a British garrison at Halifax prevented any serious American attempt at invasion. In 1777, Nova Scotian outposts came under attack from New England privateers seeking plunder. Now, we had talked about privateers. We did um, recruit them for uh, the American Revolution and our cause and they had to sign i think we did the private kids and they had to sign certain things saying they wouldn't do this and they wouldn't do that
1: yeah they they were um uh oh i can't remember the name of the the act out of parliament but king king george the Third decided that um the the british colonies would only especially america but i'm sure it was you know in the islands and yeah you know, the west indies and all those places that England was settled in um they could they could only they could only import and export from Britain they could only go a certain route and uh I mean it was basically King George uh the 3rd was just clamping down on any American enterprise on the seas. And the East India Company had a lot to do with that. Uh, well,
0: when when we recruited them for the war, though, we had them find that they couldn't take certain things, they couldn't do certain things because they were pri- a private, they actually were a private seafaring um, army. Well, and then we. John, and the, Han- go ahead.
1: John Hancock had to get around some of the governors uh, when King George the third decided to clamp down on um what he called smuggling and everybody else just called it getting around the the customs uh, nonsense that they were putting on in the sixties. Um, and, and John Hancock was a you know, he he uh imported wine and exported uh, wine and you know, he sold it. He was a big wine person that was one of his businesses and uh he uh he had to become a smuggler because um, you know it was it was he would not have been able to make a profit if he had to uh run his business according to the 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 rules of custom at, that George III put on the colonies so well, but I'm talking
0: about when we um, recruited them for the war.
1: Oh, the privateers. Yeah, well, they knew the seas. They knew how to get in and out and without being seen. and um, yeah. But they
0: had to, like, like what, what we did is, like, see George Washington was actually one of the first generals to issue rules of engagement. Um, and he had to do that for the privateers. I think they had to sign something with the Continental Congress that they could only, you know, they wouldn't be able to plunder this or what they would normally do because if they agreed and they were going to get paid by the, the new Congress, they had to follow our rules now. So yeah. this up here in Nova Scotia, the um, these privateers just, they said, well, you know what, I'm just going to go up there in Nova Scotia and get whatever the hell I want because we're at war. And this is probably what either... Before we started, because it's only 1777, um, before we recruited them, or you know, just free free um, enterprise was going up to um, plunder. Because we didn't, we told the privateers that they could not plunder. That was one of the agreements. So if they were going to get paid by the American Congress to be, you know, uh, work, you know, work for us during the war. They weren't allowed to do all this stuff. Oh yeah, um,
1: yeah. They had to follow the the uh, right. They had
0: to follow what we gave them, what, what we called now the rules of engagement.
1: Yeah, uh, it was so, the uh, the war policies put forth by the the Congress and with a lot of input from George Washington.
0: Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that they went up there on um, new New England privateers seeking plunder in Nova Scotia. That caused even former New Englanders to form militias and defend their homes. Soon thereafter, the new light religious movement, the Great Awakening, started by Henry Alline of Rhode Island, actually it started in England, in Europe, but anyway, swept through the New England and Nova Scotia, turning attention away from politics. Acceptance of British rule. When New France fell in 1760, the defeated armies, French officials, some years, and some merchants returned to France. British credit, currency, and markets such as London was, what mattered, not Paris or America. The British successfully implemented representative government in Quebec through respecting the religious freedoms of Catholics and recognizing the political value of the Catholic Church, which was backed by a dutiful French populace, which contrasts sharply with the rest of the 13 American colonies. And to this day, Quebec is all French, and they always, every year, it's so funny, when Brian and I were traveling around the world, and I call the United States the only world that I care about, um, when we were uh, staying in, uh, where did we stay, Saskatchewan? No, Um, Calgary, where Calgary is, Um, we stayed with, uh, for two weeks, with uh, Canadian four-wheelers up there, and it's just like here. The far left coast um, is they want them to sink out to the sea and they want Quebec to like just, they want Quebec to blow up, but they want Montreal and them to sink out to the sea and then the rest of the whole, the middle of uh, Canada, they just want to, you know, they want to become American. <laughs> it's the same here, I swear to God, it's the salt ocean, I swear to God. I
1: know, I know. That's... I mean, it was a mirror
0: image up there. I mean, Calgary looks exactly like Denver, Colorado, to a T. You would think that they were sister cities. They look exactly the same. And if you run a straight line from Calgary, it goes right to Denver. It was just amazing. But every year, Quebec has a vote to secede from Canada. And all of Canada's going, yay, do it, do it. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah, but what, geographically where Quebec is is stupid. Yeah. Because Montreal is all the way on the east coast. The rest is all the way on the middle and left coast. And Quebec's, like, kind of category, in the, like, not even in the middle. It's like, how's that going to happen? Yeah. This is not Europe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But every year they have a referendum to so secede from Canada. And every year it fails. And everybody's going, why is it fail? if We want it to go. <laughs>
1: And to think all this Catholic and Protestant nonsense started with King Henry VIII. Okay. Fifteen-something. 15, so,
0: 30. the French populace uh, in Quebec, that, con- that contrasts sharply with the rest of the 13 colonies, was talking about Canada and why they were with Britain and not us. Now, the Quebec Act of 1774, which I've never heard about ever, 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 and any history I've ever taken, which is so stupid that we didn't learn about this, and Canada, they are our brothers and sisters to the north. Well, we know everything about Mexico, though, right? Yes. Good Lord. <laughs> so, the Quebec Act, oh, excuse me, one minute. I have an alarm. An oh. alarm. I hate alarms. I don't need alarms. My husband is nuts with alarms. He loves alarms. Uh, I just look at the clock. Um, Anyway, (laughs) the Quebec Act, I've always hated alarms. I actually always wake up without an alarm when I have to get up. The Quebec Act of 1774 satisfied Quebec and angered the American colonies. It allowed English criminal law to exist in parallel with French civil law, and the entrenched... Bilingual, system. Quebec even had a legal mandatory ties to the Catholic Church which only concerned Catholics. The Quebec Act also expanded the province of Quebec to include Labrador in the east and extended the western boundary to the junction to the junction of the Ohio, Ohio and Mississippi rivers, all the way north to Rupert's Land. This expansion had the obvious intent of funneling the fur trading area service through the St. Lawrence into the jurisdiction of Quebec. The land was mainly Indian territory where the Indians were allied with the French that was exploitable for fur trade without endangering Indian land rights and was risking war with the Indians, not with us. This is very important, um, Deb. That's why we've never heard of this before. You know, think about the 13 colonies. And in, in the beginning, there. This area is very rich in fur trade, right? Oh,
1: yeah.
0: I mean, this was a real threat to one of the 13 colonies below Quebec, which would be, I'm going to look at the map. Okay. Um, It would be Maine, New Hampshire, New York, and if you want to get a little bit deeper, Pennsylvania, because Quebec was huge back then. If I'm looking at this map correctly, the province of Quebec went all the way from Pennsylvania, bordered around Virginia. So that's a big area. Yeah. Then territory that they were taking. And there's all of the Great Lakes are in there, which we got from, we took away from Canada. Um, none of these, none of these lakes, appear, none of these are, they're bordering on Canada, but they're all uh, American now. Um but that was a. If you look at this map, that was huge. Uh, it was taking a lot. River too. The
1: same uh, river too, which everybody wanted.
0: I know. I mean, that was a big deal. Yep. There was a lot of uh, lakes and tributaries and waterways going through there, so that was definitely a threat to the thirteen colonies. Okay. Um, American colonists desired to settle these native lands and therefore listed the Quebec Act as one of the insufferable acts. Yeah, I didn't even know that, did you? No. Hmm. Okay, so then we go to cultural and religious isolation. Quebec was the largest British colony, and it is, it's huge. It's not anymore, it's really tiny. Um, Was the largest British colony in what is now Canada. The language barrier, combined with the foreign religion of French Quebec and the history of hostilities from the Seven Years' War, which is the French and Indian War, caused Americans to view the people of Quebec as foes. Patriot attacks on Canadians solidified opposition to the American Revolution. Patriot attacks on Canadians solidified opposition to the American Revolution. American Patriot Generals Richard Montgomery and Benedict Arnold attacked Quebec in an attempt to seize Canada from the British control in 1775, which is very, very early on in the Revolution, extremely early. They took Montreal and laid siege, ultimately unsuccessfully, to Quebec City, where British regulars and a few Canadian militia defended. The Americans were ill-supplied, but stayed till spring when the British Navy sailed up the Saint Lawrence, because it was really, really early in the in the campaign. We didn't we didn't even have we didn't even have a whole regular army. Um, 1775, George Washington was still dealing with the militia in Boston, right? It together,
1: yeah. He was just getting it all together,
0: and yeah. Yeah, it was real early. They were, we would never we didn't have anything if we were. Seventy, seventy-five. We were like nothing.
1: Yeah, well, that's when Knox went up and had to bring all that artillery down from Canada. What was that year? Seventy-six. Did he do that?
0: I I don't remember.
1: I remember, but it was early on, and and he he and uh, uh, a bunch of uh, Patriot uh, almost soldiers. You know, went up and in the in the dead of winter, brought back all these cannons and and heavy uh, artillery for George Washington because George didn't have much. <laughs> he didn't have much of anything. I know. Yeah, so early on. Mm. So, um.
0: It also became true that in the the wartime alliance reached in 1778 between France and the Young American Republic, neither partner really wanted to see the other established at Quebec, preferring to have it left to Britain rather than that either of the two new friends should hold it. Economic interest. The merchants of British North America benefited from the influx of British troops and money, which powered the offense south from Quebec. The Canadians also profited from access to the tariff-protected British market, which larger New England competitors had forfeited through the act of war. The fur market in particular began to thrive in Canada. The British Navy on the Atlantic and by British military power in the interior both started fur trade. Businessmen came to recognize that their economic stake in the imperial system far outweighed any political discontent the Quebec Act. It's called self-interest, people. It's not always bad. Hence, the merchant's sense of commitment increased with the flow of trade on into the 1780s as they saw that their St. Lawrence commercial realm was tied both to Britain and to Canada's own growth westward. Factors of geography and business interests, in effect, were shaping the prime leaders of Montreal into British imperialists and Canadian economic nationalists combined. Again, Everyone wants to say that the Revolutionary War was simply taxation without representation. No. It was extremely complicated. There were many factors involved, and one of them was economic. It was an extremely economically run war. It was because of economics. Taxation hampered the economics in America. We only exported goods. We, we didn't we exported our goods. We didn't manufacture our goods. We just exported and imported. And by the way, that's what's happening right now, Dev, and I hate to tell people, for the past 50 years, that's all we've been doing. Mm-hmm. We've been exporting and importing. We haven't been manufacturing. No. And we can see why this is very bad. It's extremely bad for any country because we used to be the largest exporter and the biggest in, inventor in the world. And now we're, we're almost reduced for, to rubble because all we do is export and import. And that's what happened when we were um, colonists. And the war caused us to be manufacturers.
1: Well, so, Britain wouldn't allow manufacturing to any great degree in the colonies because the merchants in England didn't want the competition. Exactly.
0: And that's and this whole global world economy is what's hampering us as well. That was a way to to, to smash us in one instance because we're not in, we're not inventing, we're not manufacturing, we're at the mercy of other countries.
1: Yeah, and this is this is um, what really keeps the GDP down. You know, the growth national product. Uh, it's it's it's. You know it's like strangling strangling the the productivity of the country, and yeah you know we got kids out here you know coming out of college, all they know how to do is move money, they don't know how to make money, they just know how to move it they don't know how, how do you- to anything.
0: Again, there's nothing new under the sun, Deb. Everyone thinks that this is all new. It's not new. Everything that's happened has happened before, unfortunately, because we don't listen to history.
1: Well, we're not teaching history anymore either, so,
0: you know. Right. I mean, we're not listening. We're not heeding it. We're not teaching it. You know, like I just said, we were import-export only. I mean, again,
1: this is not new. No. And, and unfortunately, we're in a, a time in our country's history where, the word competition is a bad word um, because we're supposed to be all this, inc- you know, the, the inclusive world community or some nonsense like that. Well, no. You know, you can be part of a community, but you have your own home. You know, the whole community doesn't live in your house. And they don't wash your dishes and they don't prepare your meals and they don't go grocery shopping for you. So, um, you know, there's, there's the local, and then there's the global, and if we don't keep it local, we're going to lose a lot of what made this country great.
0: I know. Uh, We have a very small window, ladies and gentlemen. Hopefully this show will help you know that we have to close the window. All right, so as for the mass of French Canadians in the province of Quebec, they began to follow their uh, Senegal and circle leaps into their own commitment to the British side. Naturally, the Canadians still put their distinct community concerns and heritage first, yet they also concluded that the Americans should not be welcomed but kept outside. Self proclaimed Republican liberators had simply turned out to be the same old enemies. Native Bostonians, the Puritans of New England, stabling horses in Catholic churches during their invasion, paying in worthless paper money for crops. We actually had paper money back then, ladies and gentlemen. Again, there's nothing new in history. We had paper money, it failed. Again, right here. Um, let's see. Uh, paying in worthless paper money, worthless. Chinese call it flyaway money. The other, the uh, thing, the, the derogatory term when the gold standard came into play was as worthless as a continental. Yep, yeah, because it was called the continental paper. They had paper money back then. It didn't work, and it's gonna crash again. History, history, history. Um. See, paying, i got to say it again. Paying in worthless money for crops and supplies seized from habit, habitants' farms. The Canadians did not, to learn, did not learn to love their British conquerors as a result. Why should they? But did grow to believe that they were better off with them. So the provisions of the Quebec Act had guaranteed French Canada's own special rights and character under British rule. Guarantees which the Americans certainly would not have given. Instead, angry American outcries had greeted the act because of the very grants it had made to the French prophets. Thus, for different but historically sound reasons, neither the Francophone and Anglophone communities of Quebec, Providence, took to the American path of revolution. They stayed within the remaining British Empire, above all to avoid being swallowed up in another emerging empire, that of the United States. See, again, they they were short-sighted because the United States of America never became an empire, right? Yeah. Um, But they were so used to... Again, we're going back to our rugged individualism. They were so used to being ruled by empires that they couldn't see... Any other way of freedom but to continue being ruled by empire? And by the way, Canada is still ruled by the Queen of England. Yep, I've done this on Brian and I radio show, the Uncooperative Radio Show. She's still the Prime Minister of uh, Canada is pretty much just a figurehead. I've heard they still are going with the old charters. She is still on their money. I actually have um, a uh, Looney Tooney. And a, I think it's a ten dollar bill or five dollar bill from Canada that we brought back with us. And the one of the coins have her picture on it, and definitely the flyaway money has her picture on it. Um, she's a let. They're allowing Canada to kind of rule themselves, but they could rein them in any time they want. And again, we were a different people. We were a Christian nation. We, and even though they said Catholics and. They were not the same as we were. We came here as really devout Christians. We owed our allegiance to a higher power than the empire, than any king or queen. And the Canada, and it's a shame because Canada would have been better off as becoming part of the United States, and they know that now, and it's a shame. Okay, so... Um, that's pretty much one of the reasons they you know again I can understand self preservation self interest they were pretty much afraid they were afraid to break away from the empire that they knew even though they didn't like it, and that was the difference between us and everybody else in the entire world. We were not afraid because we what did we have on our side We had God right we yeah. didn't have we had God
1: yeah. Yeah, it, 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 and if you want to learn more, and I couldn't find this book, unfortunately. I, um, the book that uh, this, this poster on this forum got most of these quotes from is the Canadian Heritage Book. And unfortunately, when I clicked on it, it just came up, error 404, you know, page not found, whatever. Um, but uh, you might be able to find it you know, in libraries or something. Um, but anyways, that's where this information came from, from the Canadian Heritage Book. So if you want to know more about the the background to, uh, you know, why Canada didn't become the 14th colony,
0: <laughs> that's the reason. Well, and the reason that we're highlighting Canada, again, I would just want to remind everybody, we're doing, uh, we're, highlighting uh, Loyalist Hannah Ingraham, and she was, born during the, uh, she was born during the Revolution, and she ended up, most of her adult life, uh, being raised as a Loyalist, um, what do you call it? refugee. And they were real refugees, not the refugees we have now. Uh, they were real refugees. Uh, born, uh, she was, her most adult life was in Canada, in New Brunswick, well, that's why we're highlighting Canada. We've never really gone to Canada, and I'm glad Deb, that you found this, because I didn't understand, and look at how many different reasons why Canada didn't join with us, between the economic, between the religious, between the secular. Um, it was a really big deal to find out why they didn't join with us. Mm. So you're up next with the rest
1: of Canada. All right. Now this is... Uh... From the um, American Revolution Museum website, it's A M R E V Museum, all one word. dot org. And let's see. Uh, okay. Now this is by Dr. Holly A. Mayer, a uh, little article she wrote here. Um, there are 20 British North American colonies or provinces in 1776, so why did only 13 of those colonies declare independence that year or confirm it by war and treaty in 1783? The revolutionaries did try to entice and coerce other colonists to reject what they called tyranny, but they found that... Not all of their neighbors, much less all of the colonies of the British Empire in North America, interpreted ministry or parliamentary acts negatively or were prepared to sustain a rebellion. As a result, there was civil war between the colonies as well as within them, as rebelling American Whigs, later named Patriots, battled Loyalist neighbors whom they derided as Tories, the King's pawns. Between 1775 and 1783, Canada, its people, government, and armed forces, grappled with and rebuffed the political overtures of the Continental Congress and the military advances of the Continental Army as they endeavored to secure their northern border and persuade the Canadians to reject British administration and support annexation of Canada to the United Colonies. Defending their frontiers against the British and their Native American allies ultimately became the greater concern for the revolutionaries' intent on securing independence but in 1775, they launched an offensive, though limited, expansionist strategy. The rebelling, rebelling colonies did not target for inclusion the isolated fishery that was Newfoundland, nor Rupert's Land, the hudson Bay company far northern trading territory, nor, looking to the south, were they interested in immediately including the east and west Floridas, which Britain had acquired from Spain at the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763. And you can see um, the territory they're talking about on the map at the uh, at the uh, website we just spoke of the um, stack the history stack exchange. Um, no, the thirteen British colonies that became the founding dominions of the United States focused on another colony acquired in nineteen in seventeen sixty three the province of Quebec. They also initially hoped that Nova scotia And the island colony of St. John's, later renamed Prince Edward Island, would join their cause as well. Colonists resisting the British government's policy did not come easily to the decision to reach out to Canada's inhabitants, for they were suspicious of les Canadiens, the French Canadians, who vastly outnumbered Anglo-Satist settlers in the Quebec province. Those who did want the French Canadians to join them, in turn, recognized that they would have to address Canadian hostility against les Bostonnais, A term that covered not just the Bostonians, but other New Englanders and Americans, as we discussed earlier. Most French Canadians distrusted those who had long campaigned to to conquer their colony, accomplished in the French and Indian War in 1763, insulted the Catholic religion, and belittled their culture. Both British and American leaders rightly believed that the support of the French Canadians would determine the possession of Canada, for there were too few Anglo-Canadians to hold the territory and too few American soldiers to take it. Ultimately, Britain won the battle for the allegiance, or at least neutrality, of the Canadians. It benefited from the Quebec Act of 1774, from American political and military missteps and from the desire of many French Canadians to steer clear of a war between what many deemed occupiers and outsiders. Incorporating the province of Quebec into the British Empire was challenging as imperial officials tried to balance the rights and needs of both old and new colonists. The new Anglo settlers in Canada, ironically called old subjects because they had been British subjects before the Canadian new subjects, wanted to replace Quebec's old laws and Catholic religious establishment with English law and Protestantism. The British governors, however, believed that the empire was better served by making compromises so as to integrate the French Catholic majority. The Quebec Act maintained British criminal law in that province, but preserved French property and civil law for Canadian inhabitants. It also allowed Canadian Catholics to practice their religion freely. These new subjects of the British Empire, however, were expected to swear allegiance to the king and defend the crown against traitorous conspiracies. The act's conciliatory provisions and the extension of Quebec province down through the Great Lakes to the Ohio River outraged many Protestant Anglo-Americans in Canada and below who saw them as intolerable. The Quebec Act, which was supposed to strengthen empire, thus served to divide it further. The divide deepened when the lower 13 colonies became more open in their resistance against Britain and increased their attempts to recruit first Anglo and then French Canadians. The First Continental Congress, upon its assembly in September 1774, to consider responses against the coercive and Quebec Acts, consciously adopted anti-Catholic and pro rights rhetoric in order to attract supporters. But then the delegates decided to try enlisting all Canadians, not just the Protestant ones, and so approved an address on 26 October to the inhabitants of the province of Quebec in which they expressed their hope that former enemies would become friends. The Second Continental Congress convened in 1775, Followed the first by urging the Canadians to join the Confederation and promising religious liberty. American forces carried political tracts as they marched into Canada in the fall of seventy five with the dual purpose of impeding possible strikes into their colonies and encouraging Canadians to support the rebellion. Major General George Washington, the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, sent an address to the Canadians saying that Congress sent Major General Philip Schuyler's army not to plunder but to protect you. Washington assured them that the cause of America and of liberty is the cause of every virtuous American citizen, whatever may be his religion or his descent. The United Colonies no distinction, but such as slavery, corruption, and arbitrary domination may create. A committee from Congress visiting Fort Ticonderoga that November also recommended that Schuyler and General Richard Montgomery urge Canadians to join the rebellion and reiterate that Congress' desire to ensure free government, the security to their property and persons which is derived from the British Constitution and religious rights. Not everyone acted upon such sentiments, however. Although Montgomery delivered Congress's promises When he marched into Montreal, he left Brigadier General David Wooster in charge of the city while he moved on to Quebec. Wooster arrested loyalists and clamped down on Catholic clergy as he tried to stifle protest and rebellion against the occupation of Montreal. Elsewhere, as Americans invaded by word and foot, Quebec's provincial governor, Sir Guy Carleton, had problems raising local military forces. Not only were some Anglo-Canadians inclined to side with the Americans, but French Canadians were divided. The gentry and the clergy tended to support the government, but many of the common people did not. They also, however, were not willing to turn out to defend the province against the Americans. Rather, they wanted to weigh their options and see whether the Americans could capture the lands and earn the loyalties to the Canadian people. The probability that America rebels could take and hold Canada, essentially ended during a blizzard on December 31, 1775. Quebec City, City's fortifications and better-provided regular soldiers and militia troops defeated the American assaults by General Montgomery and Colonel Benedict Arnold. Montgomery was killed, Arnold was wounded, and the remaining soldiers retreated. Yet neither the Continental Congress nor the Continental Army were quite willing to give up the dream to create a larger, more powerful American Provincial Union. As the American forces huddled outside Quebec City in early 1776 following their disastrous snowy assault, the Continental Congress sent a commission that included Benjamin Franklin to recruit more Canadian support. The commissioners who reached Montreal on April 29th could not, however, counter the situation perpetuated by smallpox-riddled, undersupplied American troops. Both Canadians rejected Congress's proposals, and yet some did enlist in the fight for American independence. James Livingston, an emigrant from New York, recruited Canadian inhabitants to support the initial American invasion of Canada. Congress responded to his efforts with a commission to raise a regiment. In November 1775, Colonel Livingston reported in a possible overstatement, having 1,000 Canadians with him in what became the 1st Canadian Regiment, but by the following April, he had perhaps only 200. Moses Hazen, a New Englander who settled in St. Jean after the Seven Years' War, and Edward Ansell, originally from New Jersey, convinced Congress in January seventeen seventy-six to allow them to raise another regiment. By April, however, Colonel Hazen reported that he had only about two hundred and fifty men in his second Canadian regiment. When the Continental Army retreated south from Montreal in June 1776, most of the Canadians in Livingston's and Hazen's regiments marched with it. A few more Canadians joined them over the following years. As their numbers were not enough to maintain the regiments, their commanders filled their ranks with both American and foreign-born soldiers. Livingston recruited in New York, and Hazen had congressional permission to recruit at large. As a result, although called Canadian, these regiments became mixed continental units that belonged to Congress rather than a state, since Canada never became one. The 2nd Canadian Regiment headed towards Canada again in 1779 when Washington sent it to the Upper Connecticut River Valley of New Hampshire, in what is now Vermont, to blaze a possible invasion route to St. John. Washington ordered this movement to divert British attention from Major General John Sullivan's offensive against the Iroquois in New York and to quiet those, Hazen included, who kept advocating a new northern offensive. General Frederick Haldimand, who became Quebec's governor in 1778, knew of the road building and deployed regular and militia forces to counter any movements into Canada. Hazen's expedition was, however, just a feint. In early September, before his troops reached the Canadian border, a chagrined Hazen received orders from Washington to have his regiment return south. There are always advocates for another try at Canada, but after 1776, the Continental Army concentrated on securing the independence of the 13 states rather than trying to expand their number. And although the Articles of Confederation contained an invitation, Article 11, to Canada to join the Union, the Confederation Congress did not press it and Canada disregarded it. On the other hand, Canada could not ignore the refugees who became known as the United Empire Loyalists, who settled in the Canadian provinces after the Treaty of Paris in 1783 and reopened some of the issues about rights and governance heard during the Quebec Act debate. Canada, therefore, as well as the United States, still grappled with revolutionary dilemmas after America's War of Independence. Mm. So there we are. So that's why Canada never became the 14th state.
0: You know, and it's very important that we talk about Canada because right now they are screaming from the the mountains. Don't do what we did. Don't do what we did, please.
1: Yeah. So many
0: countries in the, in the world that are they're praying for us and saying,
1: you know, no, don't do it America, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah, well they're finding out that, you know, you run out of money. When you give everything away for free. Amazing how everybody thinks there's a free lunch. But if you take Physics one oh one you learn right off the bat that there is no free lunch. But I
0: mean even from the beginning, I mean, like you just read, George Washington wanted to, you know, let's let's all work together. You we can be free, right? What he just said. Yeah. You know, you can be free, you can, you know, make your own decisions, you know, you know, be self made men and women and they were too they literally were too afraid. hmm That's what I got
1: from what we just read. Yep. They were. I mean, you, you can imagine, I mean, here, just 10 years before, 10, you know, 10, 12 years before they had been French, <laughs> you know, it was, oh, you know, the France, it was a French colony, basically. And then the British won the war, French and Indian War, and they took it from France. And all of a sudden their whole world shifted. Now suddenly they're they're uh they're subjects of a Protestant king from another country. Yeah, we didn't we didn't have that. We no. were always
0: British rule, so I mean we were always, you know, subject British subjects, but we didn't have the conquering aspects that other colonies had, you know, I mean, how many things conquered the the Indies, the French, the Spanish, I mean, you know,
1: um,
0: again, with Canada being conquered twice, they were like, well, what's stopping America from being the same as these people and conquering us and just being tyrants, and George Washington and, and, you know, everybody else was trying to plead with them, no, we're not the same. We're not going to do that. We believe in liberty, and that means that you will have liberty as well. But unfortunately, and, you know, they they learned their lessons since then um, because Canada is not – I hate to tell you people, but uh, Canada is not all that right now. And especially the prime minister they just elected is a stop.
1: Oh, he's sympathetic. So
0: pathetic. Oh. But considering we had a fop in the White House for eight years, uh, I feel their pain. Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. So now we're going to go to New Brunswick where she settled. And if you look at the map, and there's a map on this um, CanadianEncyclopedia.ca, uh New Brunswick is right above Maine connected to Maine, and it is connected to Nova Scotia by a thin peninsula. Nova Scotia is an island, and New Brunswick is um, connected to it. And that's where a lot of the um, loyalists went to either New Brunswick or Nova Scotia, and they could actually go back and forth. Um, It's pretty easy to get between the two land masses. So, The area of the principal region divisions of New Brunswick are the watershed of the Bay of Fundy centering on the St. John River Valley. St. John River is right um, across from Nova Scotia, but there's no land connecting it. And it goes into uh, Bay and then into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, The St. John River offered early access to much of the best farmland and timber resources of the province. The residents of North and East Shores living in coastal fishing villages and interior lumbering settlements along the rivers are separated physically from the valley communities by uplands and belts of forests and separated culturally by their predominantly French language and Catholic religion. And again, people that, if they went, especially to Nova Scotia, because it
1: is an island,
0: a, a lot of the loyalists that live like in, say, Philadelphia or in the frontier, the woods would be okay for them, but, the, you know, living and having to change your whole way of life from, you know, frontier land to fishing is a big deal. And as we said, this was a civil war. And my heart also goes out to the loyalists because as Deb and I are researching and finding out, they really believe they didn't have, animo- we really didn't have animosity towards each other. We just believed in different causes. Mm-hmm. I mean, there wasn't an out-and-out out hatred because a lot of people related to each other that one was a loyalist and one was a patriot. It was extremely complicated, and both sides had, uh, had a, a rough time of it, both. Except I do have to say the loyalists, they had to give up their, I mean, the patriots, maybe their house, farmhouse got burned down. Well, the crops were burnt, but once the war was over, they could go back and rebuild. The Loyalists didn't have that option, right?
1: Well, some did. You could bet- well,
0: but the ones that decided was- not to did not.
1: Washington wanted to make real clear was that after the war, the Loyalists were welcome if they would become Americans, you know. Um, they, they had to turn over their loyalty from... King George to you know the United States and a lot of loyalists couldn't do that so they left they couldn't give up their their um their loyalty to King George the monarchy Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm
0: going to see. Okay. So the main thing about New Brunswick, because it goes into climate conservation, I'm not going to get into that. But I do want to get into um, uh, the, the topography of it, because this has to do with if you're going to, if you're leaving and you're fleeing, and you're going to have to find a place to live, and actually, you know, the Canadians had to give you a place, and they were they were promised by Britain that the Canadians. And and actually, it ended up falling on the Canadians because Britain just threw up their hands on everybody, including the natives that helped them in the war, and said, "Screw you, basically," and "We don't have the money, and go away." Um, So they were they were promised in New Brunswick and on um, Nova Scotia that they would have plots of land. They were promised land um, if they stayed loyal to the crown. And when they got there and the the crown lost, they, like said, you're on your own. So it was up to the British, the Canadians to allow them, well, they were already there and they were promised all this land and then then they weren't giving it. And the Canadians had to go, okay, well, what do we do now? Well, then it came on the Canadians to give these people a place to live. And there were about, what, thousand, Like at least a thousand went up there.
1: The first time, yeah. Then, then um, I think it was what was it? Oh, I'm trying to remember. There were thousands that eventually, you know, there there was the 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 first exodus, which was when Boston was taken, you know, taken over by the uh, the British, right, in the early part of uh, the war, and then. In, 80, in 1782 and 83, there was three exoduses right. of Loyalists. I'm glad you remembered that.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now this is where they're going, and this is where the Canadians have to figure out where to put them, but this is what their topography was like. It's, uh, New Brunswick's topography is characterized by northern uplands and mountainous in appearance. Gentle rolling hills in the center and east, sharp hills on the southern southern coast sloping down to the tidal Martians, and a lowland plain to the southeast. The soils tend to be thin and acidic over the upper up over the uplands, deeper but frequently poorly drained and acidic in the center and west and rocky portions of the south. The best soils for agriculture tend to lie in. In interval lands along the river. The upper St. John River is flanked, and I'm, it's gonna be funny to see where she's put, because to tell you the truth, they're probably put in the worst places that they possibly can, because just like the Washington DC, we gave that to the people that, we gave them swamp land because we couldn't use it. And the soils that are poorly drained and acidic, the people of uh, Canada, they're gonna take the good land and they're gonna give these people the bad land, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah.
0: Um, the upper St. John River is flanked by low plateaus of well drained sandy loam with good lime content, except uh, excellent for growing potatoes. The finely textured soils of the Fundy lowlands are also suitable for agriculture. About 5% of the province is farmland. Most of the remainder of the promise, some 83%, is under forest cover. Almost all of the forest is covered. Forest cover is suitable for forestry. Fruit and fir are the leading softwoods, followed in, in importance by cedar and white pine. Jack pine, red pine, hemlock, and larch are also present. The hardwoods, hardwoods are led by red and sugar maples, popular white and yellow birch, and beech in that order with occasional ash, elm, hop, corn bean, and red oak. So, you know they're not going to get the good place. Because why would you? These are not your people, but you're taking them in anyway. And it'll be interesting to see if our little uh, Hannah tells us where they settled. Mm. So that's the history of Canada. That's where she's going to go. And now what we're going to get in is a wonderful found, find that Deb did find about Hannah, loyalist refugee. And it has wonderful letters that she wrote as, as an adult, uh, actually an elderly woman, but it does tell us from her point of view as a child, which is such a treasure to find, don't you think?
1: Yeah, because there's so few that have, you know, that are still extinct, extinct, extent, extent. I can never say that right. They, uh, um, you know, it's really hard uh, to find personal journals um of of just you know normal people a lot of them didn't keep them they were too busy you know having babies and taking care of everything but um plus you know there were fires and things got destroyed during the war and things got destroyed after the war and it's uh wonderful that this this uh still is in existence so
0: So, I'm going to begin this essay, uh, and then we're going to have Deb actually recount Hannah in her own words. Okay, during the American Revolution, many Americans, known as loyalists, supported the British government. When the war ended in American victory, about 40,000 loyalists became refugees and made their way to Canada. One of these refugees was Hannah Ingram. Do you, know, you do realize that um, we're taking in 40,000 people, like, in one month? hmm This is ridiculous. Well, all right, I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> Look, it was a different time. There was more land back then, okay? <laughs> and besides, the refugees that were going to Canada were British subjects, as were the Canadians. They weren't uh, somebody from freaking Africa. They were all British subjects. They all had the same cultural background. Not what we're getting here, ladies and gentlemen. Let me make that very clear. Born in the British colony of New York, Hannah Ingraham was three years old when the American Revolution broke out in 1775. Oh, poor baby. I know. Little baby. So many little babies were born then, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. Aw. Le- and, and she was 11 when it ended in 1783. Now, 11 years old is pretty grown up to be in the colonies, correct? Oh yeah. I mean, in three more years, you could be married, or four or five. What if 16 was the youngest we've done? Mm. So, I mean, she she her her most of her life was during war. Um, Let's see. Growing up in a loyalist family, trapped behind enemy lines, she passed her childhood facing privation, separation from her father, harassment by her neighbors, and persecution by committee men dispensing revolutionary justice. Now, I went when I was reading this while you were reading um, the uh, about Canada, I went and I looked up the commit the committee men. Now, I went to Wikipedia because the other one's gone to the weeds and um, of course, Wikipedia is not going to be all that. But the committees of correspondence were public functionaries of a type of first appearing in England, created by the parliamentary party of the 17th century in their struggles with the Stuarts. You had talked about the Stuarts as the the kings, and uh, they were um, begins with H. What did you, were the Stuarts the Germans that came over from England as part of the monarchy?
1: uh the germans
0: yeah what was able huguenots or what were they called
1: oh the huguenots yeah
0: that took over the english that were that was the king was not king george they were part of that family that uh ancestry
1: yeah they they oh god let me think um Christ, they married all different countries.
0: Um, we did, and that's what you we had said that one time when we were talking about the Protestants because of the uh, German influence that came into England because of the marriages.
1: Yeah, Martin Luther and and uh, um, the others that it really started. oh uh, well, Martin Luther. Let's see, the Protestant Reformation started during King Henry the time, which was the 1500s. And then it spread. Um and the Huguenots came in oh dear. Well anyway they, What were the
0: Stewards? What were the Stuarts?
1: The Stuarts were uh see uh, the Stuarts let's see, they took over after the Tudors. They they oh god, um Don't go crazy if you can't remember,
0: but I know they they were before the King Georges.
1: Well, King George, yeah, he that was. uh, Let's see, the the uh, German influence came in with Victoria because she married Prince Albert, who was from Germany. Hmm. King George, um, let's see, because he was the third. (laughs) I'm trying. (laughs) Oh God. It, it, I, you know, to get your head around the British rule. I know. Yeah. anyways. Yeah. Mm. But anyways, you know, Germany was was uh, always um, somehow involved because uh, who was it that married? Oh, let's
0: see. I, I can't. We don't have to get into the weeds on this. I was just wondering if the Stuarts were before the Georges, and you're saying they're after the they tu- they're after the Tudors and before the Georges.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. So this part is this: the correspondence uh, started in England because they were having uh, problems with the Stuarts. In 1763, when the English government attempted to enforce the Trade and Navigation Acts on the American colonies after the Peace of Paris the colonial leaders advised the merchants to hold meetings and appoint committees to memorialize the legislature and correspond with each other to forward a union of interests. This was done in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New York in 1763 to 64. And that was the, that's where all the committees started, correspondence, safety, and inspection. And now they had a little thing about how the importance was. And this, this is what the committee men did. She said that they, and they'll they'll bring it up again in her memoirs. This is what the, the, they had, the committees were formed, and then there were committee men in each committee that had a specific task. And the importance of this was, first of all, correspondence was to keep communication fluid and underground, because, of course, all the um, governors and a lot of the mayors and all that was appointed by the king. But the legislators of each of the colonies were already there before these mayors and governors came, and they were appointed by the people. That's why the first thing that the governors did was to dismantle the legislators when the rebellion started because they were of the people, whereas the other higher uppy mucky muckies, were from the monarch. So for ordinary people, there were community forums where personal loyalties were revealed, tested, and occasionally punished. Serving on committees of safety was certainly not an activity for the state of heart. The members of these groups, and take this with a grain of salt, well, take this with what was happening at the time. Um, there were spies everywhere. We didn't even have the Declaration of Independence yet. We were just, you know, it was just foma- foma- fomenting. Fomenting, was that how fermenting. fomenting? Fomenting, yes. Um, so everything was on the ground in the beginning, and we had to kind of ferry out where, where people stood. You to, before you were going to do this, you need to know, well, who's with me and
1: who's not, right? Well, yeah, because King George was, uh, in the 60s, he was determined to stop the rabble-rousing, and, and he went after Hancock and Adam Sam Adams, and, uh, you know, I mean, this was in the 60s. He he sent British soldiers to to bring to uh, capture Sam Adams and John Hancock and you know the Sons of Liberty that they could find because he wanted to put down this not you know this this irritation coming out of the colonies and this was this was ten years before the war started so. Um, yeah, they they were you I mean if you if you signed on as a patriot, you basically were um you had soldiers looking for you and they're going to bring you back and hang you and you know after, you know, a trial and then and then you'd be hung hanged for treason. Okay.
0: So, members of these groups exposed ideological dissenters usually people well known in the communities in which they lived although the committees attempted as best they could to avoid physical violence they administered revolutionary justice as they alone defined it they worked out their own investigative procedures interrogated people suspected of undermining the american cause and metered out punishments as they deemed appropriate to the crime. By mid 1775, the committees increasingly busied themselves with identifying, denouncing, and shunning political offenders. Can we please bring back shunning?
1: I know shunning would be so good.
0: I already Pelosi would be shunned right out of the frickin' house. house.
1: Never okay, boycotts. We we got to get into shunning. <laughs> yep. I know. Screw boycotts. Let's do shunning. Yeah. <laughs>
0: By demanding that enemies receive a civil excommunication, the chilling words of a North Carolina committee, these groups silence critics without sparking the kind of bloodbath that was characterized so many other insurgencies throughout the world. Did you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? They silenced critics without sparking bloodbath. Again, going back to our Christian roots. So anyway. These were the committee men that went out into um, uh, Hannah's uh, neighborhood and the cities and to find out who the loyalists were and who they weren't. Um, let's see. While fleet sailed, armies clashed, and diplomats bicker, Hannah Ingraham and her mother waged a quiet, desperate struggle for survival in the ugly civil war where freedom for the politically reliable and mothers and children became enemies of the state. After the war, the family fled to Canada. Thousands of American children endured similar traumas during the war. Yet if Hannah Ingraham's childhood was typical, her story is exceptional. In the mid-19th century, when she was an old woman, Hannah dictated her reminiscences to a neighbor, Cornelia Tippett, an early instance of what we today would call oral history. Cornelia wrote it down as nearly as possible in the language of the narrator. Results was a powerful memoir that allows us to see the loyalist experience in the American Revolution through the eyes of a frightened child. So, now I'm going to skip down, um, Deb, because it's almost 730 and I want to get to her memoirs. Okay. So, let's start with that. All right.
1: <coughs> Excuse me. Um, my, it starts with, my father lived at New Concord, 20 miles from Albany. We had a comfortable farm, plenty of cows and sheep. But when the war began and he joined the regulars, they, the rebels, took it all away, sold the things, plows and all, and my mother was forced to pay rent for her own farm. What father had sown, they took away, but what my mother had raised, after she paid rent, they let her keep. They took away all our cows and sheep, only let her have one heifer and four sheep. Uncle, a Elijah Ingraham, Benjamin's brother, had given me a sheep, and when he found we were like to lose all, he took it away and kept it for me. Little John, my brother, John Ingraham, born in 73, had a pet lamb, and he went to the committee men and spoke up and said, Won't you let me have my lamb? He was a little fellow, four years old, so they let him have it. My father was in the Army seven years. They took Grandfather prisoner and sent him on board a prison ship. Mother rode 50 miles on horseback, and one day when she heard it, to go to see him and take him some money to buy some comforts. He had a paralytic stroke when he was there, and he never recovered, poor Grandfather. My father was taken prisoner once, but he escaped. The girl who was sent to take him his supper one night told him she would leave the door unbuttoned, and he got off to the woods was wandering most two months before he found the army again. Mother was four years without hearing of or from father, whether he was alive or dead. Anyone would be hanged right up if they were caught bringing letters. Oh, they were terrible times. At last there was talk of peace, and a neighbor got a letter from her husband and one inside for mother to tell her father was coming home. And this is 1783. He came home on September 13th, it was Friday, and said we were to go to Nova Scotia, that a ship was ready to take us there, so we made all haste to get ready. Killed the cow, sold the beef, and a neighbor took home the tallow and made us a good parcel of candles and put plenty of beeswax in them to make them hard and good. Uncle came down and thrashed our wheat, 20 bushels, and Grandmother came and made bags for the wheat, and we packed up a tub of butter, tub of pickles, and a good store of potatoes. And then one Tuesday, suddenly, the house was surrounded by rebels, and Father took prisoner and carried away. Uncle went forward and promised them, who took him, that if he might come home, then he would answer for his being forthcoming next morning. But no, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried enough to kill myself that night. When morning came, they sent to say that he was free to go. We had five wagon loads carried down the Hudson in a soup, and then we went aboard the transport that was to bring us to St. John. I was just 11 years old when we left our farm to come here. It was the last transport for the season and had in it all those who who could not leave sooner. The first transport had come in May and so had all the summer before them to get settled. But this was the last part of September. We had a bad storm in the Bay of Funday, but some Frenchmen came off in a canoe and helped us. There were no deaths on board, but several babies were born. It was a sad, sick time after we landed. In St. John, we had to live in tents. The government gave them to us, and rations, rations too. It was just as the first snow then, and the melting snow and rain would soak up into our beds as we lay. Mother got so chilled with rheumatism that she was never very well afterwards. Um, this is uh from Mary Fisher's account. Our ship going the wrong tack was nearly lost. When we got to Saint John we found the place all in confusion. Some were living in log houses, some building huts, and many of the soldiers living in their tents at the lower cove. Back to Hannah. We came up the river at last in a schooner and were nine days getting to St. Anne's near what is called Salamanca. Uh, Mary Fisher's account, again. We reached our destination on the 8th day of October, 1783, tired out with our long journey, and pitched our tents at the place now now called Salamanca near the shore. The next day we explored for a place to encamp, for the winter was near and we had no time to lose back to Hannah. It was two months from the day we left our home at Concord till we reached St. Anne's. We were brought as far as Maugerville in a schooner, but we had to get the rest of the way twelve miles walking or any way we could because the schooner could not get past the Oromocto shoals. How did we get to our lots? This way. Captain Clements hired a rowboat of a man uh, hired a rowboat of a man at Oromocto or Oromocto, For three shillings a day, for three days, and he sent up his folks and their goods the first day. We did not know how long they would be, but they got there and back the same night, so he told us to get in. We were ready, goods and all, by sunrise, so we started. There were plenty of single men ready to row us for their passage up, but the man who let the boat hollered after us, he was riding along the shore on horseback. Bring back that boat. He could get nine shillings a day for her. But the men rode on and did not mind his words, so he went away. You see, Captain Clements had hired the boat for three days and paid for it, so we had a right to it, for this was only the second day. Captain Clements was our next neighbor when we got to St. Anne's. At last we got to our land, pitched our tent, and the boat went back for more. When the boat got back to Oromocto, the schooner was gone and had landed the last of the passengers. Mary Fisher's account. Soon after we landed, we joined a party bound up the river in a schooner to St. Anne's. It was eight days before we got to Oromato. There the captain put us ashore before being unwilling on account of the lateness of the season or for some other reason to go further. He charged us each $4 for the passage. We spent the night on shore, and the next day the women and children proceeded in Indian canoes to St. Anne's with some of the party. The rest came on foot. There was a poor widow, back to Hannah. There was a poor widow with four children waiting to come, but none of the men there had the courage to put her aboard the boat or even go to board themselves, though we had a right to the use of it for another day, for it was paid for. And that poor woman had to sleep in a barn till the ice covered the river, and then some of the neighbors took a hand sled and hauled her up to St. Anne's 12 miles. There were no roads then, you see, and the river was the only way of traveling, Miss Mary Fisher's account. The season was wet and cold, and we were much discouraged at the gloomy prospect before us. Those who had arrived a little earlier had made better preparations for the winter. Some had built small small log huts. This we could not do because of the lateness of our arrival. Snow fell on the second day of November to the depth of six inches. We pitched our tents in the shelter of the woods and tried to cover them with spruce boughs. We used stones for fireplaces. Our tents had no floor but the ground. The winter was very cold, with deep snow, which we tried to keep from drifting in by putting a large rug at the door. The snow, which lay six feet around us, helped greatly in keeping out the cold. How we lived through that awful winter I hardly know. Sometimes a part of the family had to remain up during the night to keep the fires burning, so as to keep the rest from freezing, Some of the destitute ones made use of boards, which the older ones kept heating before the fire and applied by turns to the smaller children to keep them warm. Many women and children, some of the men, died from cold and exposure. Graves were dug with axes and shovels near the spot where our party had landed, and there in stormy winter weather our loved ones were buried. Back to Hannah. We lived in a tent at St. Anne's till Father got a house raised. He went up through our lot till he found a nice fresh spring of water and stooped down and pulled away the fallen leaves that were thick over it and tasted it. It was very good, so there he built his house. We all had rations given us by the government. Flour and butter and pork and tools were given to the men, too. One morning, when we walked, we found the snow lying deep on the ground all around us, and then Father came wading through it and told us the house was ready and not to stop to light a fire then, "'and not to mind the weather, but follow his tracks through the trees. "'For the trees were so many that we lost sight of him going up the hill. "'It was snowing fast and, oh, so cold. "'Father carried a chest, and we all took something "'and followed him up the hill through the trees to see our gable end. "'It was not long before we heard him pounding, and, oh, what joy! "'There was no floor laid, no window, no chimney, no door, "'but we had a roof at last,' Mary Fisher's account." The first summer after our arrival, all hands united in building their log houses. Other people had but few few tools, and those of the rudest sort. They had neither bricks nor lime, and chimney and fireplaces were built of stone laid in yellow clay. They covered the roofs of the houses with bark bound over with small poles. The windows had only four panes of glass. A good fire was blazing. Oh, back to Hannah. A good fire was blazing on the hearth, and Mother had a big loaf of bread with us. She boiled a kettle of water and put a good piece of butter in a pewter bowl, and we toasted the bread and all said, "Thank God, we are no longer in dread of having shots fired through our house. This is the sweetest meal I have tasted for many a day." And this uh, ends her her uh, little jury, her her retelling of of uh, her story here. Um, let's see. Let's see. There have footnotes here. Uh, that, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, let's see. Yeah. It was two weeks. Uh, the October fleet is is the uh, uh, the last. I guess she was on the second Exodus because the the uh, October fleet was the last. Um. Yeah, I'm not sure. Let's see. It says, uh, each Loyalist over 10 years of age received a weekly ration of about 2 kilos of bread or flour, 1.2 kilos of salt beef, 600 grams of salt pork, 200 grams of butter, 600 grams of peas, and 900 grams of oatmeal. Younger children might receive two-thirds or one-half of adult rations or have to share their parents' provisions. Um, so... You, you know, Geez, they uh, have a picture uh, at this um this article. Let me see what's it in. It is in the it's uh published by Scholar's Commons uh at Laurier 2003. It's Canadian Mil- Military History Volume 12. Uh if you want to look further into this cuz there's some interesting maps. Um that she is, in, in a picture of the little tent refugee colony there. Uh the Loyalist refugee camp. Um yeah, that you can see. I mean it's right on the, the water and oh god, it must have been so cold. And uh let's see. What's it say here? Um Yeah, Okay, growing up in Australia, the country, Thousands of America. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, yeah. See, we we'll, we'll go back a little bit because we have a few minutes here. Um, he he witnessed the arrest of her. Got, well, I just got kicked off. Huh? I just got kicked off
0: the
1: talk show. I couldn't hear you. Wait a minute. Okay.
0: I just got kicked off a talk show. Oh. Did you finish all of Hannah's account? What? Did you finish all of Hannah's
1: account? You're you're kinda of breaking up, darling.
0: I'm gonna try to call back in. Okay. Did you finish Hannah? What? Did you finish Hannah?
1: Yes. The
0: whole thing? Yes. All the way to
1: That's All, way way to the, all foot. the way
0: to the way to we are no longer dread? Yes. That was a lot.
1: Yes, it's all I read everything right down to the footnotes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and I won't go quick. any further. <laughs> Let me try calling back in. Okay. Well, anyways, let's see. Um, while she's calling back in, let me get back to this. Uh, see, her father um, was arrested when he came home for a clandestine visit and condemned to imprisonment until the end of hostilities. He escaped five days later and returned to the forest. When the onset of winter made concealment in the forest more difficult, the partisans made their way to British held territory. There, Benjamin, her brother, enlisted as a private in the King's American Regiment on December 20, 1776. Raised by a warrant dated December eleventh, this regiment served with distinction in New England, New York, and the South. Placed on the British establishment in 82, it was disbanded on October 10, 1783, after the end of the Revolutionary War. While Benjamin served, the persecution of the Ingram family continued. Superbly organized at the local level, the rebels formed district communities or committees of comi- district committees or committees of safety, empowered to take any action necessary to suppress dissent, including arbitrary arrest and confiscation of property. The committee men of King's district inflicted both these measures upon Ingram, non-combatants. After Benjamin's departure, the, the rebels confiscated his farm of 93 acres. They left his wife, one cow and four sheep, and made her pay rent for the use of the farm. Hannah's grandfather, Benjamin Ingraham, Sr., aged 63, was arrested in 77 by the King's District Committee and held in the notorious fleet prison. Confined aboard ships anchored in the Hudson River, the loyalist prisoners suffered starvation and severe abuse. On October 4, 77, unable to endure this treatment any longer, Hannah's grandfather took an oath of allegiance to the rebel government and won his release. Other rebels were content simply to insult and humiliate Hannah's family. American soldiers passing the Ingram farm used to fire at a tree and wish it was Ben Ingram. When the fighting ended in 1783 with a rebel triumph, there was no place for Hannah and her family in the new United States. The soldiers of the King American Regiment and their families were evacuated from New York on the William and King George, part of the fall fleet that reached St. John on October 4, 1783. From there, the Ingram family made their way up to the St. John River, to St. Anne's, the site of the future Fredericton. There they settled down to live in peace for the first time in seven years. Hannah Ingram told her story when she was an elderly adult. The simplicity of her language and the narrowness of her focus reflect a child's perspective, yet the general accuracy of her recollections is not in question. Another loyalist, Mary Fisher, who I also, you know, when I read her um, uh, journal entries, Mary Fisher, married to Ludwig Fisher of the New Jersey Volunteers, followed the same route from New York to Fredericton and produced a narrative that both verifies many of Hannah Ingram's assertions and adds numerous details. Some of Mary's own recollections will be interspersed. Yeah, so that's what we did. So uh, Hannah Ingram's reminisces describe how war affected a child and her family. They lie at the heart of the story that will be told in the New Canadian War Museum. And that's... I could go there. That would be very interesting. Uh, can you hear me now? What? Am I better? Yes. Okay, because
0: I have you at maximum volume for some reason, whatever going on with TalkShoo. I can barely hear you. Oh. Yeah. Thank you, TalkShoo.
1: Yes, well, hopefully our readers or our listeners can, can hear us. But anyways, that is... Uh, and then if you go over to the loyalist.lib.unb.ca uh website, you will it's the Atlantic Loyalist Connections. Um there is an article on her also and they have a picture of her that was taken in 1860 when she was 88 years old. And uh it, um Uh, it, it it gives you a few more um, details about uh, some of the things that she. It says because uh, unfortunately, yeah, I I couldn't I couldn't find the whole journal, but here are some of the things that uh, um. It, it, it cites in this article. In their early settlement years, Hannah's family was the only one with a house or something like it. There, uh, As a result, men would sometimes live with her family in the winters in exchange for their labor. Hannah also recalled that Fredericton was covered in raspberry bushes when she arrived here with her family. She said that long ago the Scots had settled in this area but had been burned down by the Indians. The winters were an adjustment. To get to school, Hannah had to wear snowshoes and haul her little brother John on a sled on her journey to school. Her little brother almost lost a toe, perhaps to frostbite, as a result of these trucks to school. Hannah's family were the first to own a cow, which they bought for ten guineas from someone in Moggerville. Their neighbors, the Clements, were the second ones to get a cow, and out of envy, someone in the town gashed the Clements cow. As Hannah described the culprit as an ill-tempered, jealous man among us who owned just such a dirk. As a result of this injury, Hannah's father had to kill the cow. Hannah describes Mr. Clements and her father butchering the cow into portions of meat. Mr. Clements gave the Ingrams a haunch of beef as pay for their aid in butchering. Hannah describes how difficult it was to cook such a large piece of meat with no oven. Her family had to cook it in a Dutch oven instead. Wow. Um, Hannah and her brother attended the first burial at the graveyard of the only church in town because they heard the drums beat while they were picking berries and quickly went to see what the commotion was about. Parson Samuel Cook, the minister, came over to their house to baptize Hannah's little brother Ira and then stayed for dinner. Hannah's childhood perspective of the relations between British settlers and the indigenous community is interesting. She remembers seeing 40 canoes in the river at one time and how Peter Fraser, a local fur trader, would cheat the indigenous people as he would put his fist on the scale and say it weighed a pound. One day when Hannah was home alone with a baby, likely little Ira, an Indian came to her door to sell furs. Afraid, she responded by asking him if he had smallpox. Anna recalls that they were afraid of smallpox, for Indians mostly die if they get it. The St. John River would sometimes be high, especially in the spring. For example, in May 1795, when Samuel Cook and his son came to town to attend a funeral, they drowned crossing the river. The next day, someone saw a straw hat floating, his son's hat, and then the canoe bottom up. It was a week before the bo- they found the body floating down the river. Um and you can also see the, the house. It's uh still um uh it still exists. Um uh, it was built in eighteen thirty. This would be her her home. Um or no, this is the Ira Ingram home uh house at King's Landing. I am sorry, I read that wrong. Uh but this would be Hannah's home where she lived with her brother as a single woman. Um you can visit Hannah's house at Kings Landing Historical Settlement in Prince William, New Brunswick, Brunswick. This is the home where she lived with her little brother Ira and his family as she never married. Hannah died when she was 97 years old. You can see her full narrative in the Loyalist Collection at the Harriet Irving Library in a print version or online. Oh there. Oh gee. I'm going to say that. Okay. Um Wow, she died again. These people lived for a long time. Yeah, and it's amazing. Um, her her father and mother must have been of hardy stock. Mhm. Uh she died. See, her death announcement on March thirteenth, eighteen sixty nine. Death of a Loyalist. The headquarters announced the death at the advanced stage of ninety seven years of Miss Hannah Ingram of queensberry new york county she came to this country when only 11 years of age and was one of the oldest if not the oldest loyalist living 1869 wow yeah wow um yep yeah yeah this is uh but oh such a sweet picture of her
0: Well, you know, and it goes to show that there were so many casualties of the war and the British really did not, uh, they didn't, I mean, look, we talk about it all the time that a lot of the generals and a lot of uh, rich men uh, died in poverty and even went to debtor's prison for, um, you know, giving their fortunes to the war. But when they gave to the war efforts, they weren't promised they were going to get everything back, and they were going to have all this and all these the British promised these people they would have all this mhm,
1: yeah, yeah, and there's a it's really interesting because you have to realize these were these were our na you know the the patriots' neighbors and friends and you know the the communities, they went to the same church probably and everything. And all of a sudden they were the enemy. Um, yeah, there's another article um um, called Lost Loyalists Volume 1 and it, it says in this volume you will discover details about ships and steamboat businesses, stolen powder magazines escaped death sentences prisoners of war, Washington's troop harboring of loyalists and so much more uh, that sounds very interesting too um, Mary Smith Uh It talks about Mary Smith, she was another loyalist, lived in New York City when the revolution began where she had been living for 20 years. She is an interesting figure because as a widow she was using her home to shelter loyalists and this really antagonized the Patriots. While sheltering, sheltering the loyalists, Washington's troops were quartering on her property which forced Mary to flee. She left the United States for England just before the evacuation of New York in 1783 and of course, those who went to england um, were not actually welcomed, and they had a hard time finding work um because you know everything was pretty well established they they basically ended up in London and uh then you know they were they were given a certain amount of money if they could prove that they were that they never gave up their oath to the king. Um, but you know, then there was a lot of them that came, and and, and the Parliament just you know was looking at the money just going to all these people, and they they cut down, and they they just weren't taken in because they weren't they weren't British. They were, they were looked at as you know colonists, like the redheaded stepchild, as I always say. Um, the the, the citizens of of Britain looked upon the colonists as less than. So, and we did a a woman who went to, her family went to, back to England, and and it wasn't all it was cracked up to
0: No, and it wasn't, and we actually highlighted on when we were doing one of the women, I think this is the one you're talking about, that even, you know, a former governor of, you know, one of the colonies that, was you know you know he was uh, well they're doing it now but they shouldn't uh, be considered royalty but back in the day that they were co- you know they were British subjects so somebody that was higher in power was considered you know not as much as in England but still they had that little you know, little itch there about them being good and great and he went to England and uh, they were just like really who cares oh, our, <laughs> you
1: know. Yeah, I know. It, it's just amazing. It, it's very interesting to get in. I'm so glad you did this because it, it shows the other side. Um, and, it, you know, and it just really, really brings out how much of a civil war it was. Yep. Yes,
0: it really was. And it was different than the the, the civil war of the United States because we were – We were British subjects, and we were fighting amongst each other, but ultimately it was another country, and like Hannah could go and flee. Um, In the Civil War, there was no place for you to go. It was the United States. You go back to wherever you were, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. where these people at least had a choice to go someplace else because ultimately we were fighting a different country. Yeah. But it was still a civil war, and I'm glad that we brought out Hannah because it was not all fun and games. And not only did she grow up during the war, she knew nothing but war. Then as a refugee, she was still going through hell. It wasn't a good life, and she still lived to be 97 years old.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was tough. And, uh, uh, you know, you just... God, I mean, they lived in tents in the snow and everything. Oh, my God. And they had to, I mean, they, they were the original, yeah, I went to school barefoot, walking up hills in five feet of snow, you know, both ways. No, <laughs> They it. pretty much did. <laughs> so they, had
0: they did. To, but
1: still, I
0: mean. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, the loyalists, uh, they had a hard time with it, just like the Patriots did. And, uh, again, we did give them a choice, though. We get the, as, all, as always, Christian nation, nation having to answer to a higher power. We weren't going to slaughter them all like they do all over the world. Even, like I read, the committees, all the committees of safety and all correspondents, we weren't going to make it a bloodbath. No, we weren't. We're not and never have been like any other country in the whole world. And I'm tired of people in this country wanting us to be like everyone else. We never were, and we never shall be, and we're going to make sure of that. Now, on that vein, we're coming up to the end of the show, and I want to tell everybody out there, please do not listen to the lamestream media. There is a whole wide world of Internet out there, and you need to either do that, listen to talk radio, um, they're just the mainstream media is a beyond uh, out of their mind. They're completely out of their mind,
1: and they make so, stuff. And they have oh so god, the littlest thing for days that you know really has nothing to do with anything that you know we're interested in. Um, it, it's it's just so pathetic to see what our our journalists have come to.
0: Eh. Well, it's really funny because I just did two days of show on the Uncooperative Radio Show, and we touched very vaguely on the stupid idiot, uh, Kathy idiot, but the amount of news that I found out that no one's talking about, there are 66 different budget cuts in President Trump's uh, budget that are... um, did you know that we're funding an African Development Corps? Yes. Are uh, Are you kidding me? We're bringing in these refugees. from. They're all coming over here. Why are we funding a development corps of, like, billions of millions of dollars in Africa? I mean, I have a list, and I'm going to put it up on the blog, on cooperativeblogger.com, of what we talked about. There's so much news out there that they're not even even hinting at. Deb, I had two full three hour shows, and we didn't even
1: get to all of it yeah, there are things
0: that are happening that no
1: one's talking about. There's a website where you can go um God, I wish I could remember the name of it, but you can find it online it it it's uh what's it called um well, when, go to worldella's daily for Christ's sake stop so. so this is this is put up this uh this is a list of everything that your taxes go to. All their programs and all the the stuff, you know, the money that they give out. The government gives out to everything, and some of the stuff is unfreaking believable. What they are for, and, and he's cutting a lot of it. He wants it all cut. I I really I I have to look up in my bookmarks and see if I still have it. Um, I used to read it religiously until I just would get so furious. Uh, but it does. It lists everything that the government is spending money on, and you you'll be amazed. At, like you know, like you say, there there's stuff in there that. What? What? My money? What? You know, I could use that money. Um,
0: anyway, before this ends, I want everyone, everyone, to go to uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. There you're going to find three short shows, um, mine and my husband's show, the Uncooperative, uh, Uncooperative Radio show. We're going to find the Women of the Revolution show and Patriot's Pub, PatriotsPub.us. all educational shows. Ours are about history. Brian's and I's politics and history. And Patriot's Pub is just history, no politics the facts. Start from episode one. Go to uncooperativeradio.com. Educate yourself. The only way we're going to win this war and as always, Deb takes us out.
1: Yeah, and speaking of the media, we we are still at in, in, in terrible places. Our kids in uniform are are out there in dangerous, icky places, doing dangerous, icky things. And no one talks about no one talks about what our military is doing um, around the world. And you know, they're kicking butt and not taking names anymore. I mean, they're just. And they've they've done some amazing things since Trump's taken office. Uh, so just pray for our kids in uniform and their families and that they they come home safe. Um, we lose one every now and then and, and it just breaks my heart. But uh you know, always. And, and and know that a lot of them have come home. Let's not forget them like we did after the Vietnam War, okay? All right, and Thank you all to the Rolling Thunder for another great Memorial Day uh, rally for the POW/MIA's. And with that, I'm going to say good night, Loki. Miss you. And good night, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the show. Come on back. Hopefully, we'll be here again on Monday. We made it five weeks, but uh, you know, life happens, and we get sick, and, and things you know get a little crazy. But I'll have it up on the on the talk shoe website, so just check in. Not I'm you know, as far as we know, a week from now we'll be here same time with a another woman of interest during the Revolutionary War and we will introduce you to her. And you all have a safe week. Keep the powder dry. Good night. God bless.